When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Dan Grunfeld about his new book, By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream. Dan played professional basketball overseas for several years after starring at Stanford. Uh, his father, Ernie, had a long career in the NBA as a player, followed by about 30 years as an NBA executive. Um, and I'm really excited to have Dan on the show. This was a, a fantastic book and, and kind of right up my alley with the basketball theme. And so, Dan, welcome to the show. Paul, thanks so much for having me. So I want to start off, I have to start off with this incredible woman that you call Anyu. Um, can you give our listeners a brief introduction to who she is and, and her background in what her background was in, in Romania slash Hungary? Um, from there to her immigration to the United States. Absolutely. So Anyu is my grandmother. We call her Anyu because it means mother in Hungarian. So she's 96 years old today, lives in the Bay Area, 25 minutes from me and my wife. And she's a Holocaust survivor. And so during the war, as you said, she's from Transylvania. So on the border of Romania and Hungary, and it kind of went back and forth during the war. But she happened to be visiting an older sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded. And so the rest of her family was taken to Auschwitz. You know, she ultimately lost five siblings and both parents in the Holocaust, but she had a chance to survive. And she was saved twice in Budapest by Swedish diplomat Raul Wallenberg, you know, who's considered to be one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. And so, you know, my grandmother, I always tell people, she's not only my hero, she's also a hero because she risked her life to save other people during the war, which, as you know, I talk about in the book. And so she she survived and. You know, met my grandfather after the war and uh, spent more than a decade under communism in Romania, which was also a very difficult, brutal way to live. And they were eventually able to leave Romania, initially bound for Israel, but at the last minute came to the United States of America. And it's where they, you know, raised my, my dad. Uh, he came when he was nine years old and, you know, he found basketball when they got to the States. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Raul Wallenberg because um, it's evident in the book, first of all, what a remarkable person he was, but secondly, how important he is to Anyu. Um, can you talk a little bit more about him and, and what role he played in 
really saving her life. Yeah, so Wallenberg went to Budapest at the end of the war with the mission to save Jews. And so the first way he did that was he issued protective passports called Schutzpasses. And they gave Jews in Budapest a level of protection. They you know, said they're a Swedish citizen or a Swiss citizen. Actually, they had a partnership there. And my grandma was able to get one for herself, but she risked her life to obtain 17 passes for other people. And so that's what I was just speaking about. And so it, it was that that pass that saved her from some time. It was eventually no longer recognized. She was captured. She was put in the Budapest ghetto. And at the end of the war, she, she was there with her brother. They reunited in the ghetto. And at the end of the war, they saw Nazis enter the ghetto with machine guns over their shoulders. And word quickly spread that they were there to kill the remaining 80,000 Jews in the ghetto. And so my grandmother and her brother raced up the stairs of the building they were living in and found a little attic space and hid in there. And you know, my, my grandma described that there was room for about four or five people. And there was like a dozen in there. My, my grandma says it was like sardines, you know, and they were just, you know, crammed in there, just hoping no one would find them. And they waited for 10 minutes and then 20 minutes and then an hour and nothing happened. They eventually checked and the ghetto was clear. Uh, it was soon liberated and, and they were free to go. And that's really how my grandma survived the Holocaust. They, she didn't know why the Nazis didn't kill them that day. But 40 years later, a movie was made about Raul Wallenberg's life. And it was in that movie that my grandmother saw the scene of you know, Adolf Eichmann, one of the most notorious Nazis, ordering you know, for the, all these Jews in the ghetto to be killed. And it was Wallenberg who raced to the gates of the ghetto, confronted the general and said, let these people go. They're innocent. You know, you'll hang for this. The war is over. And he convinced the general to call off the massacre. So it took my grandma 40 years to learn that Wallenberg saved her life twice during the war. And yeah, she still talks about him. She still, still sheds tears, you know, because he was he was taken by the Russians after the war and never seen again. So he risked his life and ultimately lost his life to save Jews. Yeah, just uh, <clears throat> excuse me, just a remarkable person. Um you know, you, I, speaking of remarkable people, of course, you're on you. Um, you know, you guys, it's clear in the book how close you and, and she are. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with her? She's the greatest. You know, we were all, we've always just been very, very close from the time I was a little kid. And she lived in the Bay Area. I grew up in New Jersey. She would always come visit and stay with us. We just had this really special relationship. And as you know, cause I write in the book, you know, I saw Stanford's campus for the first time as a seventh grader when we were visiting her from the East Coast. You know, my older sister was looking at colleges. We visited Stanford and I said, wow, great school, great basketball program, 25 minutes from my grandmother. It was the place I wanted to go. And, you know, through a combination of luck, timing, skill, it happened. But that was such a blessing for us. We spent four years together. She came to every single home game I played at Stanford. Every Sunday she was at my dorm, dropping off my clean laundry, picking up my dirty laundry, filling our fridge. You know, I, I had it very, very good and still do. You know, my grandmother is, uh, is just the best. And, and I've always been interested in her story and gained so much inspiration from it. You know, I knew what she overcame, what she went through. I know what my dad overcame and went through. And so that really motivated me on and off the basketball court. And, you know, when I was at in school, in college and spending so much time with her, I was, I would always ask questions about, you know, the history and what happened. And I just generated this interest in it. And, you know, once my professional career was over, you know, I did a year and a half of, re of more research to really understand the story and then started to write the book. So it came out, you know, roughly three months ago, but I've been working on it for five plus years. And, you know, the time I spent with my grandma at, at Stanford and how close we are, that it just really contributed to my desire to tell this story. Um, I'd imagine, you know, it was very difficult for, for 
on you and and your father as well to um, to share you know certain things that were in this book. Um, how was it working with them on on the more difficult parts of the book? Yeah, it it was difficult it, for for all of us. You know, my grandma. You know, with Holocaust survivors, it's oftentimes a binary where either they don't talk about it or they want to talk about it. You know, they want to kind of make sure that the stories are passed on. And my grandmother's in the latter camp. So she is open about this history. It's hard. You know, th there were certainly tears shed during the process, but she's open with it. It's, it's actually harder for my dad. You know, and you know this from reading the book. Right? Basketball took my dad away from some really hard things. And he really never had to look back on it. And me writing the book me kind of you know, understanding the whole story it brought it back for him and that, that's been very difficult and it's not just what happened in the holocaust as you know from reading the book there was more tragedy once they came to the united states and so it, it it's been hard it's been hard for everyone but ultimately they're proud of me they're really grateful that i told the story and my grandma always says just because a story is difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't tell it and, and particularly when it relates to the holocaust all those all Holocaust stories are difficult because you're talking about life and death and innocent people being killed. You know, it, it's the it's just a tragedy. You know, it's just the, the biggest tragedy. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was hard. But again, just because it was hard, they, they were both willing to share with me. And I think that's why the, the book, there's so much detail in it, because they were so open about about sharing. Yeah. And, and you know, you just kind of alluded to the, the further tragedy that that your grandmother experienced when she came to the United States and, and that your your father experienced, which was losing losing your father's brother. Uh, I, Leslie was his American name. I, I want to say this right. Is it Lutzi? Lutzi. Yep. Lutzi. OK, I'm sorry. Lutzi. Um, you, you, you speak in the book about how your father never talks about him. Did he? talk about him for the book? Did, did Anu talk about him for the book or did you get information about him elsewhere? No, they did. They did speak about my uncle. And I, I just, you know, we talked about it. I, I just asked the questions, you know, and uh, it, it was hard. You know, there were questions I asked that I never would have asked if I weren't writing a book. And, you know, there were details that I never knew about my uncle's passing. And, you know, so as you know, when my dad came to America, at nine years old, he didn't speak a word of English. He had never touched a basketball. And a, a few months later, after arriving, his brother was diagnosed with leukemia and he passed away within a year, you know? And so for my grandparents to survive the Holocaust, come to America, have a chance at a new life and then lose his son. And for my dad to lose his older brother, who, as you know, because I read in the book, my dad, what my dad called his brother in Hungarian translates to English as my king. Right. That's how that just shows how much he loved and revered and looked up to his older brother. So to, to lose him was so crushing. And, you know, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. You know, it, it was basketball that shined its light on my dad and our family when we really needed it the most. And so, yeah, it, it was hard. But I, and I when I was talking to my dad and interviewing him for the book, I said, listen, we have to talk about your brother. And, you know, I had some questions and he he answered them. And, you know, it was hard for both of us because it is such such a loss and it's a hole that can never be filled. But, you know, it was important to me to memorialize that event and my uncle's memory in the book. How did your father feel about you writing this book? Because I know, you know, your father, yeah, and you allude to this in your in your book, I think with regards to his participation in the in the Ernie and Bernie documentary. Um, your, your father can be guarded. Um, actually, I actually interviewed your father a few years ago. He's, he's guarded. I, that, 
You know, I think that's the word to use, which, by the way, is uh, perfectly understandable. When you've been an, an NBA executive for uh, probably about 30 years, um, you learn to be guarded, particularly after working in New York City at the Garden. Um, but how, w- w- how, how receptive was he to the idea of this book? Yeah, he, he is guarded. You know, he's, he's a private person. And you get from the book, like, his parents survived the Holocaust. They came to the United States as immigrants. They worked. That's my dad's mentality. Put your head down, do the work, treat people the right way. And yeah, so th- for all those reasons, he, he is guarded. So when I was doing the research with my dad and my grandma, it was a year and a half worth. I didn't tell them that I was writing a book. I said, I have a project in mind, but I think that I needed to create that space for us to have really deep, honest conversations without any expectations of what would happen after. And it wasn't like I was pulling one over on them. You know, I just, I, I, I was, it was, it had to be really honest and open conversations. And so I actually didn't say to my dad, I'm going to write a book. What I said to him is I wrote a book because I was done with it by the time I finally told my family because, I, and you know, cause you read it. It's so deep. It's so personal. It's emotional in, in many ways. It's funny in many ways, but it was this really, really profound journey and I needed that space to take it. And so once I finally told my dad and my grandma and the rest of my family, you know, I wrote the story, you know, we have this big story. I wrote it. They were, they were surprised that I didn't tell them earlier, of course, because we're such a close family, but they were, they were proud. You know, it's, it's important, you know, for a family to survive the Holocaust, lose so much family, flee communism under duress, come to the United States, lose a son for my dad to lose a brother, and then for a game to come along and change everything. And for, you know, my family to, to persevere, to work hard, to overcome, that's a really hopeful story. And so I think that, you know, they were, they were proud of me and grateful that I told it. You just mentioned how this game came along and changed everything. And there's this wonderful scene in the book where, um, and we'll go back after to when your father first started playing basketball, but, but, you know, your parents owned a store and they worked, I'm sorry, your grandparents owned a store and and they worked, you know, seven days a week and long hours and um, never had the time to see your dad play. And then one day, one of what I I believe one of the coaches called and, and said, Hey, you got to come down here and see your kid play. Um, can you can you tell a story about when your grandparents go to see him play for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was a junior in high school, so he was seventeen years old. You know, and you know, in the book I talk a lot about privilege, and I'm privileged in a lot of ways. One of them is I grew up so different, so much differently than my than my dad, and my grandparents. So my mom and dad were coming to all my games. My sister, my was coming to my games. My dad was working with me on my basketball skills in the driveway. That's kind of how I grew up. My dad didn't have that luxury. As you mentioned, you know, my grandparents opened a fabric store in the Bronx. They worked six, seven days a week. And my dad's high school games were in the early afternoons around four o'clock. And my grandparents would have had to close their fabric store to come watch him. And they were just, they had to work. So they never closed their store. They knew he was playing basketball. They knew he enjoyed it. It, you know, kept him out of trouble. And it was just kind of what he did, but they didn't really think much more of it. They got a call at their fabric store from his his high school coach, Erwin Iser, who's a Queens coaching legend. And he said, you know, Mrs. Grunfeld, you have to come watch your son play basketball. And so the following week, they closed their store. They went to Forest Hills High School in Queens, New York to watch my dad play. But they didn't close the store early enough because they still wanted to work. And so when they got to the gym, the game had already started and the gym was full. And so the usher at the door told them, like, we can't let you in. The gym is full. 
my grandparents' English was not good. And so my grandfather tried to say, we're parents of player, you know, we're guests of coach, but the officer said, you know, sorry, you know, it's full. There's nothing, nothing more I could tell you. And my grandmother, she kind of steadied herself and she said, our son is Ernie Grunfeld. That's his name. And, and it's funny to hear my grandma tell like the usher's eyes lit up and he said, well, why didn't you say that? <laughs> and, and he opened the door, you know, to the gym and, you know, they walked in and this is the first time they'd been to a basketball game in the States, you know, for my dad and my, they looked around and my grandpa, he kind of nudged my grandma with his elbow. And he said in Hungarian, you know, if, if Ernie's such a good player, why isn't he on the court? And my grandma grabbed him and she said, well, look right there. That's Ernie. And she pointed to the middle of the floor. My grandpa couldn't even recognize him. And it's, it's so symbolic, right? It's that transformation before his very eyes, right? His son had transformed from this at-risk immigrant youth in America who had lost his brother, who didn't speak the language, who was made fun of by kids. All of a sudden now he's on the basketball court. My grandpa didn't recognize him. And so my grandpa used to make my dad come to the fabric store every weekend to work. And on the court after that first game, he said to my dad, you never come to the store again. You just play basketball and we'll take care of the rest. And so, yeah, that's when my dad was a junior in high school, 17 years old. And the following year, he's an All-American. He's one of the most highly recruited players in the country. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, so what was life like for your dad when he first, you know, you kind of set the scene a little bit of, you know, an immigrant didn't speak English, um, obviously didn't have much money. What was life like for your dad when he came to the States? Yeah, it's hard. Think about it. He left, you know, he was born under communism in Romania. That's how he grew up. You know, his native language is Hungarian. He also spoke Romanian. They spent, my family spent six months in Rome before coming to the United States. So my dad spoke fluent Italian as well, right? So here's a kid who speaks three languages. None of them are English, comes to New York. And he was really a fish out of water, you know, and, and again, losing his brother, was such a, a catastrophic loss for him. Could you imagine a kid that age adjusting to a new culture, learning a new language, trying to make friends, parents have to work, you know, to build a life and then losing his brother, right? That That's that's the backdrop of the story for him. And, uh, you know, he did what all the other kids in New York City were doing at the time. He went to the local playground to play. And what you did at the playground is you played basketball. And for my dad, it was a way to make friends, to learn English, and to heal from that loss of his brother. You know, he, he says to this day, you know, if you could play ball in the neighborhood, that's how you made friends. You know, so I, I say to him, well, you must have made a lot of friends, you know, because <laughs> sometimes things just click, you know, and, and I think if it weren't for the trauma of his, of his early life, you know, being born from the ashes of the Holocaust, his brother passing, I don't think it would have happened the way it did, right? Because he had such intense focus. And I think it was such an escape from the things that he had been through that, man, he just, it was a rocket ship that he didn't even know he, he was on, right? But because he was just playing because that's what you did. But all of a sudden, you know, you, you look at, you look around and he's one of the, the best players in the country. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just a dream. And again, that's why my, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. You know, the game of basketball just came into my dad's life at the right time. And, you know, he turned him into a legend. And, you know, given that backdrop of, of your, you know, where your grandparents came from and, your, and where your dad came from, what did it mean to your dad and his parents when he won an Olympic gold medal for the United States in 1976? Yeah, just just an unbelievable 
thing that happened. And to this day, I have in, in the hallway of my apartment a panoramic picture of the opening ceremonies of the 76 Olympics because it hung in my grandmother's apartment for 35 years. And, uh, you know, she gave it to me a few years ago. That just shows how meaningful that event is for our family. You know, who, who could have ever have dreamed that? For, and my grandparents, this time they closed their fabric store for two weeks straight. They drove from Queens, New York to Montreal, Canada, and they were there. They were in the building when my dad stood on top of the Olympic podium wearing the stars and stripes with USA across his chest to become a gold medalist. You know, it's, that's, you know, it's part of the reason why I wrote the book. You know, I grew up knowing that my dad had an Olympic gold medal. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My dad's an immigrant. And as I got older, I said, wow, how did these dots connect? How did this happen, right? How did this miracle happen? And it was, you know, through through hard work, through perseverance, through a lot of love, through the game of basketball. And so, yeah, those 76 Olympics are such a culmination. Even though my dad was a longtime NBA player, a longtime NBA executive, he had such a storybook career in basketball. But that those Olympic Games were really a culmination of my family's story of, you know, leaving that that horrible place, you know, the, the Holocaust, of course, and then communism and then coming to America and for my dad to become a gold medalist. I mean, it's just the ultimate blessing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a movie, right? I mean, like you said, that's why you wrote the book. It's just, it's just phenomenal, incredible story. Um, of course, as you mentioned, your dad had a, had a illustrious career. Um, he started Tennessee with, with his good buddy, Bernard King. They formed the, the, the deadliest duo in the country. Um, and then he played nine years in the NBA, including for his hometown Knicks. Um, and then, of course, he was general manager of the Knicks for several years, followed by the Bucks and the Wizards. Um, he's what people call a basketball lifer, right? So what what does, given everything you just said, you know, how, how basketball changed his life, what does basketball mean to your father? Uh, basketball means the world to my dad, to our family. You know, there's the term basketball lifer, right? To indicate you've been involved in the game forever, which is true. <laughs> you know, my dad, and, and he's done so many different things. He was a player. He was a broadcaster. He was a coach. He was a general manager. He's been around the game for so many decades that he is a basketball lifer. But if you really think about that term, basketball saved his life. Right. I mean, think about it, right. From where he came from and what basketball did for him. So it's, it's so much deeper than just having a, for him and for our family than just having a presence in the game. You know, basketball was the ultimate vehicle, not only for, for him to have a future, for my family's future to change, but for my dad to have that sense of community and connection, you know, cause that's what, that's what the game does. It brings different types of people together from different places. You know, my dad is this immigrant from, from communist Romania, whose parents were Holocaust survivors. Bernard King is a black man from Brooklyn, you know, grew up, grew up in poverty. They go to Knoxville, Tennessee. They form one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. They play for the Knicks together and to this day are still dear friends. You know, they talk every month. Bernard texted me, you know, a month ago just to tell me he was proud of me for the book. And, you know, I call him Uncle B, right? The game brought, the game brought us together. The game brought so many people into my dad's life. And so, yeah, for, for he, he certainly is a basketball lifer. And, you know, I know that the game means so much to him and to our whole family. And again, that, that's why I wrote the book, right? By the grace of the game. You know, that that's what a game can do for a family and for people. Sure. So the New York Knicks were the biggest show in town in the 1990s. They went to the finals twice. Um, they were always, you know, uh, always contenders. 
What was it like for you to grow up as the son of the general manager? Yeah, you know, I'm very honest about this in the book. I think first and foremost, it's an awesome experience. You have, there's so many perks. You know, I grew up going to Nick playoff games and going to practices and, and just being able to experience it all with my dad. It, it really brings a family close together. You know, not only my dad, like my mom, my sister, we would always be going to the Nick games. And it, it's just a wonderful way to grow, grow up. For me, I love playing basketball. It was something that I wanted to do. So I also learned a lot. You know, I got to see how pros approach the game. I learned so much from my dad. So for all those reasons, it's just a very, very cool way to grow up. But there's another side to it. And, and you know, I write about this very candidly in the book. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectations. You know, people, there's a lot of eyeballs. People are watching you. They're assuming things about you. I'm lucky to have wonderful parents who never pressured me about basketball and never forced me to play the game. My dad has always said, hey, you do, you explore your interests, do what you love to do. I just love basketball. You know, what, what kid doesn't want to be like their parent? And so, you know, because I did, I played the game that my dad was very good at and that he was very kind of a public figure around, there, there was pressure there. You know, and that that drove me in, in a lot of ways, but it also weighed me down at times. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, <clears throat> for our listeners, just a little background. Uh, Dan's father, Ernie, was fired as, as general manager of the Knicks in April of 1999. It was a ridiculous, absurd decision. Um, to, to illustrate that, two months after Ernie was fired, the Knicks team that he built went on to the NBA Finals. Um, so, but Dan, I wonder at that time, you know, you talk about in the book how devastated you were um, when your father was fired for obvious reasons. Um, but at that time or, or in subsequent years, did you ever talk to your dad about, about being fired from that job or how unfair it was or anything like that? I mean, of course, we talk about what, what happens in our lives and it wasn't, just around like how unfair it was. The, the results speak for themselves, right? He, he was he was fired in April, like you said, and the team he built went to the NBA Finals. So that that is what it is. That that's the date of the situation. But of course, you reflect on the things that happened, and it's more about the whole experience with the Knicks because my dad used to watch the Knicks from the bleachers at the old Madison Square Garden as an immigrant in New York City after losing his brother. Right? That, that he would take. My grandfather would take the subway, subway from the fabric store. My dad would take the subway. They would meet at the garden, buy the cheapest tickets because that's what they could afford, and then and watch the Knicks. Who could have dreamed that my dad would have been not only playing on that court as a member of the Knicks, but then the general manager of the team? By the way, he also, after he retired as a player, he broadcast, the Knicks hired him to broadcast Knicks games on the radio. But he came to the United States and didn't even speak English. He was denied admittance to schools because he didn't speak the language, right? So for so many reasons, this this Cinderella story, this magical journey, it went through the Knicks, right? The Knicks were such a big part of that. So for the Knicks to fire, for my dad to be fired in kind of dramatic fashion, 
it, it was a lot more than just than basketball. It was it was a lifetime journey, you know. So so we we of course talk about that journey, reflect upon it. But listen, my dad was hired almost immediately by the Milwaukee Bucks based off the the great success he had as an executive with the Knicks. He built great teams there. He was hired by the Wizards. He built great teams there. So he had a storybook career as an executive as well. So everything happens for a reason. It all worked out for the best. And I'll tell you, I'll always be a Knicks fan. You know, my dad and I, even after after they let him go, you know, years later, we'd go back to the garden and we would walk around the concourse together and just say, wow, man, there, there's no place like the garden. You know, so it, it's all love. There, it's all love with the Knicks and with, with the garden and, and New York City. Um, did you... Did you feel pressure to play and not just play, but excel at the game because of who your father was? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you, there's that internal pressure where you want to, you want to live up to those expectations, but then, you know, people make comments. And so you a hundred percent feel it. I, I always, I felt judged and that you're not seen as just another one of the guys, right? I was, it was, Oh, that's Grunfeld's son. And, you know, maybe I would make an all-star team or I'd make a traveling team and I would hear people make comments like, oh, of course he did. You know, his dad's a GM of the Knicks, right? And, and you know, I write in the book about winning these awards at a basketball camp and parents booing me, you know, because it was a Nick basketball camp and my dad was the GM of the Knicks. So, of course, parents could say, well, yeah, it's clear that this kid won these awards because his dad runs the team, right? So it's kind of, it's unfair. Listen, I, I can't blame them, right? Because, hey, you, everyone wants the best for their kids. And maybe you see this kid that you think isn't being treated, is being treated, you know, in a way that's not fair. And so I dealt with all those things. The reality was, I was a pretty good player, you know what I mean? And so uh, the, the things that I got as a basketball player, I felt like I earned them. But it, it, by the way, also being said that I had a lot of advantages, as I mentioned, right? I had resources, I had access to great mentors. And so I did have advantages, but between the lines, you have to earn your keep, you know? And so uh, that, that always motivated me. And when I signed that scholarship offer to Stanford, you know, that was a big deal for me because I wanted to show people that, you know, I, I can make something of myself in this game on my own merit. Yeah. Stanford didn't care who your daddy was. So, um, That's you know, right. you, t you, you, t you, and, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, you, you had been dreaming of going to Stanford for years. Um, and then, you know, you, the first couple of years, as you chronicle, were, you know, you had your struggles, um, but you came back uh, your junior year in the best shape of your life, um, and you were having a fantastic season. People were talking about you being a first-round draft pick, and of course, you sadly you tore your ACL. How devastating was that for you? Yeah, at the time, it, it was crushing. You know, I was that, as you mentioned, I was the most improved player in the country. I was the most improved player in the history of Stanford's program. So I went from 3.4 points per game as a sophomore to 18 points per game as a junior. So I was averaging 18 a game, five and a half rebounds, you know, shooting high percentages. It was my moment. And took a wrong step at the wrong time, tore my ACL on national television, you know, with Tiger Woods sitting courtside. You know, sometimes those things happen at the most dramatic moments. And, you know, of course, I knew right away, you know, when, when this happens, when something that, that severe happens inside your body, you know, something's not right. And I, I was on the floor, you know, writhing in agony and I was panicking. And when I finally kind of came to, my grandmother was kneeling down next to me, rubbing my head. You know, she sat 20 feet away from where I got hurt. And, you know, it was, of course, it was such a disappointment because I'd worked so hard and not only my dad's success in the game of basketball, but my family's history that we've been talking about, right? Knowing that 
my grandmother's loved ones didn't get a chance to live out their dreams. They were killed, you know? And so, and I, I carried that history and I, I wanted it so bad for so many reasons. And so for the injury to happen at that moment, yeah, it, it was a hundred percent devastating. But, you know, that night I had dinner with my grandma, right? And she, she survived the Holocaust, you know, basketball is wins and losses. That's life and death, right? So, and my dad, he look what my dad overcame and, and what he achieved. And so I had these great examples and this inspiration of, hey, things happen in life. You know, you, you should you should deal with it. You should feel it. You should mourn it. But then you should stay positive and get to work. And that's what I did. You know, I tried to maintain a good attitude. I tried to work really hard. And, you know, I, I tell people about this book, like, I got so much inspiration from these stories that I hope you read the book and get the same amount of inspiration. And I think it was that inspiration that helped me recover and, you know, have a successful professional career and kind of keep, keep moving forward. Although that's not to say that it wasn't a hard thing because it was. And if my grandmother were on the car right now, she'd say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about his injury. Right. It was, it was so crushing for her because she knew how bad I wanted it and she was right there. But, you know, listen, my grandma also always told me, it's not about what happens to you in life. It's about how you respond to it, you know, and that was my opportunity to respond to something, you know, difficult that happened. So you, you, you work yourself back. Uh, you came back for your senior year, you know, you, 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 you ran the mile and the faster than anyone on the team, uh, in training camp. Um, but you weren't, you weren't the same player that year. Um, and then of course you, you did play several years overseas. Do you think you ever regained the form that you had your junior year? It's a great question. So it took me about a year and a half to really get back in, kind of be fit. And so, yeah, my, my senior year, I, I wasn't even close to my normal self. My rookie year was in Germany, top league in Germany, a good team. By the way, that's a whole different story, as you know, because it was Germany, right? So I write in the book, I'm probably the only person who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first NBA, his first professional contract, right? Because... My grandmother is a Holocaust survivor, of course. She she blessed it. She said, you know, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. You should go, um, and which I did. But, you know, so that first year, you know, I was the second leading scorer on my team. I averaged 12 points a game in a good league. And, you know, if I would have redshirted, I would have been a college senior at that level, right? And so and I'm playing against grown men at this point. So uh, I think I did get back to a similar level. But I, I think things shifted. Because I, you, you know, you get a sense of perspective when something like that happens, right? Because I, I lived for basketball at that time. I would have, you know, it was just my sole focus. I wanted it so bad because of the story we've been talking about. But after I got hurt, you realize how fleeting it is. And what really matters is your loved ones and how you treat people in your relationships. And so while that, that's a good thing for your life, <laughs> you know, I think it, it, it broadened my horizons as a human being. But I don't think I ever had the same level of tenacity as I did before I got hurt. Uh, and, and then, you know, physically, listen, I was getting, I, I, as I got older as a pro, I lost physical things that really had nothing to do with my injury. So uh, that, that it, it certainly disrupted my, my physical trajectory, but I got back to a high level, but never with the same tenacity as I had before I got injured. Um, so as you said, you played in Germany and then, uh, afterwards played in Spain and, and finally Israel, what was it like to win a, a championship in Spain? It was, it was incredible. The, the winning a championship is such like, it's like a spiritual moment because you work with these people, you know, for a year and you commit to every, and there's, it, it's, there's so much that goes into that. And 
and everyone wants it, right? You play in a league with, with 18 teams, it was for us in Spain, every single team wants that, and every single player on every single team wants that. And so when you're the ones who do it and you do it together in that year, we had a really good group of guys. You know, there was there was talent, but more so there was camaraderie and, and common common mission there. And so to win it was it was something I'll never forget. You know, when you pop those champagne bottles, you know, it, it's just it's such a feeling of euphoria. And so I'm and it wasn't the only championship I won in my life. I won championships at every levels in, in different ways, but that one to win a professional championship. It's yeah, it's an experience that actually I, I take with me in my professional work in my home life because to know what it takes to succeed at that level at that level is something really special and I, it's something I'll never forget. As I mentioned, you you concluded your career in Israel. Um, what did what did it mean to you to play professionally in Israel? Given you know obviously not just your Judaism, but but the the role that Judaism has played in, in the in the history and trajectory of your family. Yeah, Paul, you know, it was such a meaningful experience. And I had not been to Israel until 2009 when I played in the Maccabea game. So it was my first time in Israel and my whole family came, my sister. And I remember talking to my sister. It was her t- first time as well. And we both said, like, this is life changing, you know, because it's it, it was Israel that opened up its arms to families like mine after the Holocaust. And it's Israel that is there to this day to protect and preserve the Jewish people. And so, and since my dad had a passport to go to Israel before they ended up going to the United States at the last minute, most of our family ended up in Israel. So I had so much family there to reconnect with that part of our history, to understand the Jewish homeland, the basket, it's a high level of basketball, made dear friends. And so, and it, it was such like it was such a full circle moment for my family, for our family story, right? Because for my dad to be the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust, you know, he wore number eighteen for the Knicks, and eighteen is a symbolic number in Judaism, you know. And then I got to play in Israel, and I played for Jerusalem, right? So I had Jerusalem across my chest, and so for our family story to to come full circle in that way in Israel at the end of my career. It was just amazing and certainly one of, one of the great experiences of my life. You did have an opportunity to put on Nick's uniform. Um, you were uh, you earned yourself an invite to training camp and, and sounds like came close to making the team. What was it like to put on that Nick's uniform? So special. And, you know, I write in the book very honestly. I wish I would have embraced it more and felt those emotions more. I was, you know, 24 years old, I think, and and I, I was close to the NBA because I had a really strong second year in Spain. And, you know, I was just focused on, on making making the league, <laughs> you know. And so the, you know, the other parts of it, understanding, you know, what the Knicks had done for my family, that nostalgia, I didn't I didn't really look at it that way at the time. But, but in retrospect, I mean, how special, you know, and you know, from the book, it just was kind of happenstance that I was I had this great tryout with the Knicks and I really excelled and I got the opportunity to go to training camp and you know one of the Knicks assistant coaches Kenny Atkinson who would become the head coach for the Brooklyn Nets you know after I got cut you know he told me he said you know listen man you deserve to make the team and even to this day when I see him <laughs> this is like you know 10 this is 15 years ago almost now and he'll, he'll every time I see him you deserve to make the team so for me given the injury I had given how bad I wanted it to have that validation of knowing that, you know, I became an NBA level player. I just made my career in Europe. You know, that, that was really satisfying. And, 
certainly writing the book and looking back on it, I can connect the dots and know how meaningful it is in the trajectory of my family that I also got to put on a Knicks jersey myself. You know, I just wish that at the time I would have leaned into that a little more instead of being so determined on just playing well and trying to make it. You, you talked about how, you know, after after your major knee injury, your your perspective on the game shifted somewhat and um, you've come such a long way within the game. It's 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 such a part of your history, your family, the, the as you said, the trajectory of your family. At this point in your life, what does what does the game of basketball mean to you? Yeah, you know, basketball is in my blood. And, you know, the book starts, I was born around the game. You know, my my dad had two road trips, so long road trips. He went on one of them. He was there for my birth. He went on another one, and he was there for my bris, right, for what happens on the eighth day of life of the Jewish religion. And so my parents planned it that way since I was delivered by C-section. So I was born into the game. I, I wrote this book to memorialize what the game has done for our family. All these things live inside of me. And so I, I'll always love the game. You know, I love to watch it. I still enjoy playing it. I'm not saying it's the prettiest sight in the world anymore. Not that it ever was, by the way, but certainly it's not anymore. But love to play it, love to watch it, love to talk about it. And, you know, like basketball, basketball is such a social game. It's such a connector. You know, it's about cooperation, communication, and so all the lessons that I learned from the game, how to kind of communicate with people, how to you know, deal with disappointment, overcome adversity, all those things that happen naturally through the game of basketball, I apply every day in my life. I'm always drawing on my basketball career, whether it's professionally, personally. And so it's inside of me. You know, it's part of me and I'll, I'll always love the game. I'm, you know, watching the NBA, watching college, uh, men's, women's, doesn't matter. I just... I'm a fan of the game of basketball, and I always will be. And Dan, what are you doing now that that your basketball career is over? Um, besides writing this wonderful book, what's going on? What's going on in the life of Dan Grunfeld? Yeah, so you know, I went back to school after my professional basketball career was over. I got my MBA at Stanford. You know, I was an academic All American as an undergrad at Stanford, which is something I'm very proud of. But there's more to the story than that because my grandmother, who we've been talking about, Anu, you know, Anu still says she was probably the only kid who liked to go to school. You know, but when she grew up in a little tiny village in rural Romania, she loved to go to school, but she wasn't able to get her education. You know, because of the Holocaust, she was not able to get her education. So here I was with the opportunity to go to Stanford. You know, I wanted to make the most of that. So I did well as an undergrad. I was able to get my MBA there, and that kind of you know changed my trajectory professionally. I joined a startup during business school, which we grew. And about three years ago now, I, I joined a venture capital firm. So we work with you know startup, investing in startups. I work on the operation side, helping them grow and scale. And so I work in high tech in the Bay Area and I really enjoy it. There's a lot of similarities to my professional career, you know, to, to sports, the basketball, the competitiveness, the communication, the teamwork. I remember when I was in business school talking to a career counselor about, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, the, the ball stopped bouncing. What am I going to do now? And he said, think about what you really liked about basketball and try to apply that, you know, in the professional world. And I think I, I found a nice way to do that. And of course, and you know, from the book for me, family first, right? So I have, my son will turn three in April. I have another one on the way due in April. And so that's really the most important thing. Uh, so, and, and the, and the book of course is out. So busy days for sure. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with, with all the many things that are going on in my life. Congratulations on on baby number two to come. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're getting we're gearing up as we speak. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, 
How has Anya reacted to the book? Not just, you know, the, the book, you know, after she read it and, and as well as the excellent reviews that it's received. How has, how has she reacted to that? She, she's so proud and it gives her a great sense of satisfaction. And she always said, she's always been afraid that no one will even know her siblings, her parents existed. You know, they were sent to Auschwitz and never heard from again. You know, she always says they don't have graves to visit. They don't have death certificates. And now their stories live forever through the book, you know, so that's such a, a meaningful, special thing. And, you know, she lives in a, in a retirement community in the Bay Area. Many of her friends in her community have read it. And she'll tell me almost every day that someone said something about the book and they really loved it. And so she's very proud of that. I'm, I'm so proud to be able to share that kind of moment with her. And my dad said it best recently. We were talking to someone about, you know, doing an interview and he said, you know, I was a good basketball player. My son was a good basketball player, good writer, but my mother's a hero. And that's true. You know, my grandmother is a hero. She is the star of this of our family. She's the star of the story. This celebrates her life, her values, what she taught us, how that those things were applied in the game of basketball. So for all those reasons, that this is a celebration of her and and she's enjoying it as she should. Well, I want to add to that. I mean, for all those reasons, it's wonderful that you wrote the book for her. But it, uh, I want to thank you for writing the book in general for everybody, because um, I full disclosure, I'm Jewish. Um, I don't know how much that really matters, though. I, I think whatever your background is, I, it's important for these stories to be told. It's important to have a record of these events. Um, it's important to show the ways that they have affected families. Um, and you told it in such a wonderful way as, you know, ultimately it, it resulted in the triumph of your family. Um, and so thank you for writing this. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. And that's been one of the cool things about the book is I've had so many people who said, you know, I'm not Jewish and I'm not a basketball fan, but I love this book. You know, and that means so much because to your point, it is a universal relatable story about you know, the love of family and overcoming adversity and, you know, just talking about this really important history. And listen, it's never been more relevant, unfortunately. We see what's going on in our world today. And when people's freedoms are, are you know, being taken from them, you know, lives being put at risk, you know, these are such serious times, such serious themes. So stories like this should, should be continue to be told throughout history. Absolutely. Okay, Dan, I'll get you out of here uh, with one last question that I'd like to ask all my guests. Um, first, let me just say again, the name of Dan's book is By the Grace of the Game. The Holocaust, a basketball legacy, and an unprecedented American dream. Um, and as Dan said, you don't you don't have to be Jewish or a basketball fan to enjoy this this book. It's about um, it's about perseverance and triumph. It's it's universal themes that we can all relate to. Um, so, Dan, my final question is: What is your all time favorite sports book? Man, that's a great question. I I, I can only say one. <laughs> that's such yeah. a hard one. I mean, you could list a few if, if necessary. Let, let me, let, so I love the boys in the boat. Uh, if you've read that about the, yeah, sure. you know, the, the rowing team for the 1936 Olympics, uh, it's, and it, it's sports adjacent, but most books are sports adjacent, right? Because they're human interest story. Like my book is a human interest story, but sports is kind of the backdrop. And, and the boys in the boat was like that. It's, it's a book that I really looked up to and drew inspiration from. It just tells a really powerful story. Uh, so that's that's the one that, that I'll say. But there there are so many amazing sport, sports books out there. And again, I'm, I'm a basketball person. So 
I've read a, a number of basketball books that I really love, of course, but books like Sea Biscuit, you know, where it's like horse racing. Like that's another book that I just I love. Uh, so th- there are there are a lot of them, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just a great joy to read a great book about sports. Absolutely, because as you said, they they're they're never the great ones are never really about sports, right? That that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay, Dan. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, I love the book, um, and it was really a, a pleasure to talk to you about it. Paul, thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it.